if the kingdom is ever to come to our Lord, and come it will, it never will come through a few ministers, missionaries, or evangelists preaching the gospel. It must come through every one of you preaching it, in the shop, and by the fireside, when walking abroad, and when sitting in the chamber. You must all of you be always endeavoring to save some. I will enlist you all afresh tonight and bind anew the king's colors upon you. I would that you would fall in love with my master over anew and enter a second time upon the love of your espousals. There is a hymn of Cowper's which we sometimes sing, Oh, for a closer walk with God. May we get a closer walk with him, and if we do so, we shall also feel a more vehement desire to magnify Christ in the salvation of sinners. I would like to press the inquiry upon you who are saved. How many others have you brought to Christ? You cannot do it by yourself, I know, but I mean how many has the Spirit of God brought by you? How many did I say? Is it quite certain that you have led any to Jesus? Can you not recollect one? I pity you then. The Lord said to Jeremiah concerning Coniah, Write ye this man childless. That was considered to be a fearful curse. Shall I write you childless, my beloved friends? Your children are not saved. Your wife is not saved. And you are spiritually childless. Can you bear this thought? I pray you, wake from your slumbering and ask the Master to make you useful. I wish the saints cared for us sinners, said a young man. They do care for you, answered one. They care very much for you. Why don't they show it then, said he. And I often wish to have a talk about good things. But my friend, who is a member of the church, never broaches the subject and seems to study how to keep clear of it when I am with him. Do not let them say so. Do tell them about Christ and things divine, and make your resolve, every one of you, that if men perish, they shall not perish from want of your prayers, nor for want of your earnest and loving instructions. God give you grace, each one of you, to resolve by all means to save some, and then carry out your resolution. 3. But my time is almost gone, and therefore I have to mention in the last place the great methods which the Apostle used. How did he who so longed to save some set about it? Why, first of all, by simply preaching the gospel of Christ. He did not attempt to create a sensation by startling statements. Neither did he preach erroneous doctrine in order to obtain the assent of the multitude. I fear that some evangelists preach what in their own minds they must know to be untrue. They keep back certain doctrines, not because they are untrue, but because they do not give scope enough for their ravings, and they make loose statements because they hope to reach more minds. However earnest a man may be for the salvation of sinners, I do not believe that he has the right to make any statement which his sober judgment will not justify. I think I have heard of things said and done at revival meetings which were not according to sound doctrine, 
but which were always excused by the excitement of the occasion. I hold that I have no right to state false doctrine, even if I knew it would save a soul. The supposition is, of course, absurd, but it makes you see what I mean. My business is to bring to bear upon men not falsehood, but truth, and I shall not be excused if, under any pretense, I palm a lie upon the people. Rest assured that to keep back any part of the gospel is not the right nor the true method for saving men. Tell the sinner all the doctrines. If you hold Calvinistic doctrine, as I hope you do, do not stutter about it, nor stammer over it, but speak it out. Depend upon it. Many revivals have been vanishing because a full-orbed gospel was not proclaimed. Give the people every truth, every truth baptized in holy fire, and each truth will have its own useful effect upon the mind. But the great truth is the cross, the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Brother, keep to that. That is the bell for you to ring. Ring it, man. Ring it. Keep on ringing it. Sound forth that note upon your silver trumpet, or if you are only a ram's horn, sound it forth, and the walls of Jericho will come down. Alas, for the fineries of our cultured modern divines, I hear them crying out and denouncing my old-fashioned advice. This talking about Christ crucified is said to be archaic, conventional, and antique, and not at all suitable to the refinement of this wonderful age. It is astonishing how learned we have all grown lately. We are getting so very wise, I am afraid we shall ripen into fools before long, even if we have not arrived at it already. People want thinking nowadays, so it is said, and the working man will go where science is deified and profound thought is enshrined. I have noticed that, as a general rule, Wherever the new thinking drives out the old gospel, there are more spiders than people. But where there is the simple preaching of Jesus Christ, the place is crowded to the doors. Nothing else will crowd a meeting house, after all, for any length of time, but the preaching of Christ crucified. But as to this matter, whether it be popular or unpopular, our mind is made up and our foot is put down. Question we have none as to our own course. If it be foolish to preach up atonement by blood, we will be fools, and if it be madness to stick to the old truth just as Paul delivered it, in all its simplicity, without any refinement or improvement, we mean to stick to it, even if we be pillared as being incapable of progressing with the age for we are persuaded that this foolishness of preaching is a divine ordinance and that the cross of Christ which stumbles so many and is so ridiculed by so many more is still the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yes, just the old-fashioned truth, if thou believest, thou shalt be saved. That will we stick to 
and may God send his blessing upon it according to his own eternal purpose. We do not expect this preaching to be popular, but we know that God will justify it ere long. Meanwhile, we are not staggered because, as childish dotage in delirious dreams, the truth we love a fightless world blasphemes, the danger they discern not they deny, laugh at their only remedy, and die. Next to this, Paul uses much prayer. The gospel alone will not be blessed. We must pray over our preaching. A great painter was asked what he mixed his colors with, and he replied that he mixed them with brains. T'was well for a painter, but if anyone should ask a preacher what he mixes truth with, he ought to be able to answer with prayer, much prayer. When the poor man was breaking granite by the roadside, he was down on his knees while he gave his blows, and a minister passing by said, Ah, my friend, here you are at your hard work. Your work is just like mine. You have to break stones, and so do I. Yes, said the man, if you manage to break stony hearts, you will have to do it as I do, down on my knees. The man was right. No one can use the gospel hammer well, except he is much on his knees. But the gospel hammer soon splits flinty hearts when a man knows how to pray. Prevail with God, and you will prevail with men. Straight from the closet to the pulpit, let us come, with the atoning oil of God's Spirit fresh upon us. What we receive in secrecy, we are cheerfully to dispense in public. Let us never venture to speak for God to men, until we have spoken for men to God. Yes, dear hearers, if you want a blessing on your Sunday school teaching or any other form of Christian labor, mix it up with fervent intercession. And then observe one other thing. Paul went to his work always with an intense sympathy for those he dealt with, a sympathy which made him adapt himself to each case. If he talked to a Jew, he did not begin at once blurting out that he was the apostle of the Gentiles. But he said he was a Jew, as Jew he was. He raised no question about nationalities or ceremonies. He wanted to tell the Jew of him of whom Isaiah said, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, in order that he might believe in Jesus and so be saved. If he meant a Gentile, the apostle of the Gentiles never showed any of the squeamishness which might have been expected to cling to him on account of his Jewish education. He ate as the Gentiles ate, and drank as he did, sat with him, and talked with him, was, as it were, a Gentile with him, never raising any question about circumcision or uncircumcision, but solely wishing to tell him of Christ, who came into the world to save both Jew and Gentile, and to make them one. If Paul met with a Sathenian, he spoke to him in the barbarian tongue, and not in classic Greek. If he met a Greek, he spoke to him as he did at the Areopagus, with language that is fitted for the polished Athenian. 
He was all things to all men, that he might by all means save some. So let it be with you, Christian people. Your one business in life is to lead men to believe in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and every other thing should be made subservient to this one object. If you can but get them saved, everything else will come right in due time. Mr. Hudson Taylor, a dear man of God, who has labored much in inland China, finds it helpful to dress as a Chinaman and wear a pigtail. He always mingles with the people and as far as possible lives as they do. This seems to me to be a truly wise policy. I can understand that we shall win upon the congregation of Chinese by becoming as Chinese as possible. And if this be the case, we are bound to be Chinese to the Chinese to save the Chinese. It would not be amiss to become a Zulu to save the Zulus, though we must mind that we do it in another sense than Carasso did. If we can put ourselves on a level with those whose good we seek, we shall be more likely to effect our purpose than if we remain aliens and foreigners and then talk of love and unity. To seek myself to save others is the idea of the apostle. To throw overboard all peculiarities and yield a thousand different points in order to bring men to Jesus is our wisdom if we would extend our master's kingdom. Never may any whim or conventionality of ours keep a soul from considering the gospel. That were horrible indeed. Better far to be personally inconvenienced by compliance with things indifferent than to retard a sinner's coming by quarreling about trifles. If Jesus Christ were here today, I am sure he would not put on any of those gaudy rags in which the Pussyites delights himself. I cannot imagine our Lord Jesus Christ dressed out in that style. While the Apostle tells our women that they are to dress themselves modestly, and I do not think Christ would have his ministers set an example of tomfoolery, but yet even in dress something may be done on the principle of our text. When Jesus Christ was here, what did he wear? To put it in plain English, he wore a smock frock. He wore a common dress of the countrymen, a garment woven from the top throughout without seam, and I think he would have his ministers wear that costume which is most like the dress which their hearers wear in common, and so even in dress associate with their hearers and be one among them. He would have you teachers if you want to save your children, talk to them like children, and make yourselves children if you can. You who want to get at young people's hearts must try to be young. You who wish to visit the sick must sympathize with them in their sickness. Get to speak as you would like to be spoken to if you were sick. Come down to those who cannot come up to you. You cannot pull people out of the water without stooping down and getting hold of them. If you have to deal with bad characters, you must come down to them, not to their sin, 
but in their roughness and in their style of language so as to get hold of them. I pray God that we may learn the sacred art of soul winning by adaptation. They called Mr. Whitfield's chapel at Moorsfield the soul trap. Whitfield was delighted and said he hoped it would always be a soul trap. Oh, that all our places of worship were soul traps, and every Christian a fisher of men, each one doing his best, as the fisherman does, by every art and artifice to catch those he fishes for. Well, may we use all means to win so great a prize as a spirit destined for eternal weal or woe. The diver plunges deep to find pearls, and we may accept any labor or hazard to win a soul. Rouse yourselves, my brethren, for this godlike work, and may the Lord bless you in it. Chapter 14, page 97 Instruction in Soul Winning When Christ calls us by His grace, we ought not only to remember what we are, but we ought to also to think of what He can make us. It is, follow me and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. It is not, follow me because of what you are already. It is not, follow me because you may make something of yourself, but follow me because of what I will make you. Verily I might say of each one of us, as soon as we are converted, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It did not seem a likely thing that lowly fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with the net would be quite as much at home in preaching sermons and in instructing converts. One would have said, How can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee. That is exactly what Christ did. And when we are brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make us. What said the woman of a sorrowful spirit when she lifted up her song? He raised up the poor out of the dust and lifted up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. We cannot tell what God may make of us in the new creation, since it would have been quite impossible to have foretold what he made of chaos in the old creation. Who could have imagined all the beautiful things that came forth from darkness and disorder by that one fiat, let there be light? And who can tell what lovely displays of everything that is divinely fair may yet appear in a man's formerly dark life when God's grace has said to him, Let there be light. O you who see in yourselves at present nothing that is desirable, come you and follow Christ for the sake of what he can make out of you. Do you not hear his sweet voice calling to you and saying, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men? Note next that we are not made all that we shall be, nor all that we ought to desire to be, when we are ourselves fished for and caught. 
This is what the grace of God does for us at first, but it is not all. We are like the fishes, making sin to be our element, as they live in the sea, and the good Lord comes with the gospel net. He takes us, and he delivers us from the life and love of sin. But he has not wrought for us all that he can do, nor all that we should wish him to do when he has done this. For it is another and a higher miracle to make us who were fish to become fishers, to make the saved ones saviors, to make the convert into a converter, the receiver of the gospel into an imparter of that same gospel to other people. I think I may say to every person whom I am addressing, if you are yourself saved, the work is but half done until you are employed to bring others to Christ. You are as yet but half formed in the image of your Lord. You have not attained to the full development of the Christ life in you unless you have commenced in some feeble way to tell others of the grace of God. And I trust that you will find no rest to the sole of your foot till you have been the means of leading many to that blessed Savior who is your confidence and your hope. His word is, Follow me, not merely that you may be saved, nor even that you may be sanctified, but follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Be following Christ with that intent and aim and fear that you are not perfectly following him unless in some degree he is making use of you to be fishers of men. The fact is that every one of us must take to the business of a man-catcher. If Christ has caught us, we must catch others. If we have been apprehended for him, we must be his constables to apprehend rebels for him. Let us ask him to give us grace to go a-fishing, and so to cast our nets, that we may take a great multitude of fishes. Oh, that the Holy Ghost may raise up from among us some master fishers, who shall sail their boats in many a sea and surround great shoals of fish. My teaching at this time will be very simple, but I hope it will be eminently practical. For my longing is that not one of you that love the Lord may be backward in his service. What says the Song of Solomon concerning certain sheep that come up from the washing? It says, Every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. May that be so with all the members of this church and all the Christian people who hear or read this sermon. The fact is, the day is very dark. The heavens are lowering with heavy thunder clouds. Men little dream of what tempests may soon shake the city and the whole social fabric of this land even to a general breaking up of society. So dark may the night become that the stars may seem to fall like belighted fruit from a tree. The times are evil. Now, if never before, every glowworm must show its spark. You, with the tiniest farthing candle, 
must take it from under the bushel and set it on a candlestick. There is need of you all. Lot was a poor creature. He was a very, very wretched kind of believer, but still he might have been a great blessing to Sodom had he but pleaded for it as he should have done. In poor, poor Christians, as I fear many are, one begins to value very truly every converted soul in these evil days and to pray that each one may glorify the Lord. I pray that every righteous man, vexed as he is with the conversion of the wicked, may be more importunate in prayer than he has ever been and return unto his God and get more spiritual life that he may be a blessing to the perishing people around him. I address you, therefore, at this time, first of all upon this thought. Oh, that the Spirit of God may make each one of you feel his personal responsibility. Here is for believers in Christ, in order to their usefulness, something for them to do. Follow me. But secondly, here is something to be done by their great Lord and Master. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You will not of yourselves grow into fishers, but that is what Jesus will do for you if you will but follow him. And then lastly, here is a good illustration used according to our great master's want. For scarcely without a parable did he speak unto the people. He presents us with an illustration of what Christian men should be, fishers of men. We may get some useful hints out of it and I pray the Holy Spirit to bless them to us. 1. First then, I will take it for granted that every believer here wants to be useful. If he does not, I take leave to question whether he can be a true believer in Christ. Well then, if you want to be really useful, here is something for you to do to that end. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What is the way to become an efficient preacher. Young man, says one, go to college. Young man, says Christ, follow me and I will make you fisher of men. How is a person to be useful? Attend a training class, says one. Quite right, but there is a surer answer than that. Follow Jesus and he will make you fishers of men. The great training school for Christian workers has Christ at its head, and he is at its head not only as a tutor but as a leader. We are not only to learn of him in study but to follow him in action. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The direction is very distinct and plain and I believe that it is exclusive so that no man can become a fisherman by any other process. This process may appear to be very simple, but assuredly it is most efficient. The Lord Jesus Christ, who knew all about fishing for men, was himself the dictator of the rule, Follow me if you want to be fishers of men. If you would be useful, keep in my track. I understand this, first, in this sense. Be separate unto Christ. These men were to leave their pursuits. They were to leave their companions. They were, in fact, to quit the world, 
that their one business might be in their master's name to be fishers of men. We are not called to leave our daily business or to quit our families. That might be rather running away from the fishery than working at it in God's name. But we are called most distinctly to come out from among the ungodly and to be separate and not to touch the unclean thing. We cannot be fishers of men if we remain among men in the same element with them. Fish will not be fishers. The sinner will not convert the sinner. The ungodly man will not convert the ungodly man. And what is more to the point, the worldly Christian will not convert the world. If you are of the world, no doubt the world will love its own, but you cannot save the world. If you are dark and belong to the kingdom of darkness, you cannot remove the darkness. If you march with the armies of the wicked one, you cannot defeat them. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Nowadays we hear nonconformists pleading that they may do this and that they may do that, things which the Puritan forefathers would rather have died at the stake than have tolerated. They plead that they may live like the worldlings, and my sad answer to them when they crave for this liberty is, do it if you dare. It may not do you much hurt, for you are so bad already. Your cravings show how rotten your hearts are. If you have a hungering after such dog's meat, go, dogs, and eat the garbage. Worldly amusements are fit food for mere pretenders and hypocrites. If you were God's children, you would loathe the very thought of the world's evil joys, and your question would not be, how far may we be like the world? But your one cry would be, how far can we get away from the world? How much can we come out from it? Your temptation would be rather to become sternly severe and ultra-puritanical in your separation from sin in such a time as this than to ask, how can I make myself like other men and act as they do? Brethren, the use of the church in the world is that it should be like salt in the midst of putrefaction. But if the salt has lost its savor, what is the good of it? If it were possible for salt itself to putrefy, it could but be an increase and an heightening of the general putridity. The worst day the world ever saw was when the sons of God were joined with the daughters of men. Then came the flood, for the only barrier against a flood of vengeance on this world is the separation of the saint from the sinner. Your duty as a Christian is to stand fast in your own place and to stand out for God, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh, resolving like one of old that let others do as they will, as for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. Come, ye children of God, you must stand with your Lord outside the camp. Jesus calls you today and says, Follow me. Was Jesus found at the theater? Did he frequent the sports of the race course? Was Jesus seen, think you, in any of the amusements of the Heridian court? Not he. He was holy 
harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. In one sense, no one mixed with sinners so completely as he did when, like a physician, he went among them healing his patients. But in another sense, there was a gulf fixed between the men of the world and the Savior, which he never essayed to cross, and which they could not cross to defile him. The first lesson which the church has to learn is this, follow Jesus into the separated state, and he will make you fishers of men. Unless you take up your cross and protest against an ungodly world, you cannot hope that the holy Jesus will make you fishers of men. A second meaning of our text is very obviously this, abide in Christ, and then you will be made fishers of men. These disciples whom Christ called were to come and live with him. They were every day to be associated with him. They were to hear him teach publicly the everlasting gospel, and in addition, they were to receive choice explanations in private of the word which he had spoken. They were to be his body servants and his familiar friends. They were to see his miracles and hear his prayers, and better still, they were to be with himself and become one with him in his holy labor. It was given to them to sit at the table with him and even to have their feet washed by him. Many of them fulfilled that word, Where thou dwellest, I will dwell. They were with him in his afflictions and persecutions. They witnessed his secret agonies. They saw his many tears. They marked the passion and the compassion of his soul. And thus, after their measure, they caught his spirit, and so they learned to be fishers of men. At Jesus' feet we must learn the art and mystery of soul winning. To live with Christ is the best education for usefulness. It is a great boon to any man to be associated with a Christian minister whose heart is on fire. The best training for a young man is that which the vaudeous pastors were wont to give. When each old man had a young man with him who walked with him whenever he went up the mountainside to preach and lived in the house with him and marked his prayers and saw his daily piety. This was a fine course of instruction, was it not? But it will not compare with that of the apostles who lived with Jesus himself and were his daily companions. Matchless was the training of the twelve. No wonder that they became what they were with such a heavenly tutor to saturate them with his own spirit. His bodily presence is not now among us, but his spiritual power is perhaps more fully known to us than it was to the apostles in those two or three years of the Lord's corporeal presence. There be some of us to whom he is intimately near. We know more about him than we do about our dearest earthly friend. We have never been able quite to read our friend's heart in all its twistings and windings, but we know the heart of the well-beloved. We have leaned our head upon his bosom and have enjoyed fellowship with him such as we could not have with any of our own kith and kin. This is the surest method of learning how to do good. Live with Jesus, follow Jesus, and he will make you fishers of men. See how he does the work, and so learn how to do it yourself.
A Christian man should be bound apprentice to Jesus to learn the trade of a Savior. We can never save men by offering a redemption, for we have none to present, but we can learn how to save men by warning them to flee from the wrath to come and setting before them the one great effectual remedy. See how Jesus saves, and you will learn how the thing is done. There is no learning it anyhow else. Live in fellowship with Christ, and there shall be about you an air and a manner as of one who has been made in heart and mind apt to teach and wise to win souls. A third meaning, however, must be given to this. Follow me. And it is this, Obey me, and then you shall know what to do to save men. We must not talk about our fellowship with Christ, or our being separated from the world unto him, unless we make him our master and lord in everything. Some public teachers are not true at all points to their convictions. How can they look for a blessing? A Christian man anxious to be useful ought to be very particular as to every point of obedience to his master. I have no doubt whatever that God blesses our churches even when they are very faulty, for his mercy endureth forever. When there is a measure of error in the teaching and a measure of mistake in the practice, he may still vouchsafe to use the ministry, for he is very gracious, but a large measure of blessing must necessarily be withheld from all teaching which is knowingly or glaringly faulty. God can set his seal upon the truth that is in it, but he cannot set his seal upon the error that is in it. Out of mistakes about Christian ordinances and other things, especially errors in heart and spirit, there may come evils which we never looked for. Such evils may even now be telling upon the present age, and may work worse mischief upon future generations. If we desire as fishes of men to be largely used of God, we must copy our Lord Jesus in everything and obey him in every point. Failure in obedience may lead to failure in success. Each one of us, if he would wish to see his child saved, or his Sunday school class blessed, or his congregation converted, must take care that, bearing the vessels of the Lord, he is himself clean. Anything we do that grieves the Spirit of God must take away from us some part of our power for good. The Lord is very gracious and pitiful, but yet he is a jealous God. He is sometimes sternly jealous towards his people who are living in neglect of known duty or in associations which are not clean in his sight. He will wither their work, weaken their strength, and humble them until at last they each one say, My Lord, I will take thy way after all. I will do what thou bidst me to do, for else thou wilt not accept me. The Lord said to his disciples, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he promised them that signs should follow, and so they did follow, and so they will. But we must get back to apostolic practice and to apostolic teaching. We must lay aside the commandments of men in the whimsies of our own brains, and we must do what Christ tells us, as Christ tells us, and because Christ tells us. Definitely and distinctly, 
we must take the place of servants, and if we will not do that, we cannot expect our Lord to work with us and by us. Let us be determined that as true as the needle is to the pole, so true will we be as far as our light goes to the command of our Lord and Master. Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. By this teaching he seems to say, Go beyond me, or fall back away from me, and you may cast the net, but it shall be night with you, and that night you shall take nothing. When you shall do as I bid you, you shall cast your net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. Again, I think that there is a great lesson in my text to those who preach their own thoughts instead of preaching the thoughts of Christ. These disciples were to follow Christ that they might listen to him, hear what he had to say, drink in his teaching, and then go and teach what he had taught them. Their Lord said, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. If they will be faithful reporters of Christ's message, he will make them fishers of men. But you know the boastful method nowadays is this. I am not going to preach this old, old gospel, this musty Puritan doctrine. I will sit down in my study and burn the midnight oil and invent a new theory. Then I will come out with my brand new thought and blaze away with it. Many are not following Christ, but following themselves. And of them the Lord may well say, Thou shalt see whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. Others are wickedly prudent and judge that certain truths, which are evidently God's word, had better be kept back. You must not be rough, but must prophesy smooth things. To talk about the punishment of sin, to speak of eternal punishment, why, these are unfashionable doctrines. It may be that they are taught in the word of God, but they do not suit the genius of the age. We must pare them down. Brothers in Christ, I will have no share in this. Will you? O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Certain things not taught in the Bible our enlightened age has discovered. Evolution may be clean contrary to the teaching of Genesis, but that does not matter. We are not going to be believers of Scripture, but original thinkers. This is the vainglorious ambition of the period. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.